Hello, I'm Anna Elliott and this is Blendle Handpicked. If you give me five minutes of your time, I'll give you three stories that stood out above all the rest this week. First up today, I've got a piece from Nicole Chi in Are We Europe about how your data is being gathered at Europe's borders, especially at the airport. Now, China is often held up as an egregious example of the state surveilling its citizens and collecting their data at an alarming rate. Beijing's social credit system, where citizens are given a reputation score, is even based on that data. But this piece raises a potentially alarming fact. Western countries collect your data too, and there's no guarantee that it will only be used for good. Border guards have always used security as a pretext to breach the rights to privacy of individual travellers, but the advance of technology has increased that trend. EU countries now gather biometric data at the airport, that's things like fingerprints, facial recognition and the like, as well as smartphone metadata. And in April of this year, the EU voted to create a gigantic searchable biometrics database that will aggregate all the identity records it has gathered to become one of the biggest people-tracking databases in the world. And if that sounds scary, it should. She explains how this threatens the fundamental human right of privacy. If the data falls into the wrong hands, it could cause unimaginable damage, especially for refugees fleeing persecution and other marginalised groups. And it also increases the risk of identity theft. Of course, all this gets worse when artificial intelligence advances and starts governing these practices. Some AI systems have already been shown to exhibit racial and gender biases while categorizing people. And that's not even all. She goes on to explain yet more ways technology at the border is being employed to undermine privacy. And, to add insult to injury, she explains how under-regulation of these technologies could lead to a slippery slope of abuse. This eye-opening read is nine minutes long, and you'll find it in the most recent issue of Are We Europe? My second pick today is a fascinating profile from Atish Tizir in Vanity Fair of Pakistani Prime Minister Imran Khan. So, Tizir has known Khan since his younger, wilder days as an international cricket star and Oxford-educated playboy. And the thread that runs through this beautifully written piece is a question, really. How does a hard-partying young man known for his sexual escapades become the leader of an Islamic country and an outspoken critic of Western decadence, something he used to revel in? And it takes us on a wild ride along the way. The thing that gives this piece an extra edge is that Tizir's family connections offer a window into Khan's past. Tizir's mother was a reporter and interviewed Khan in the 70s when his status was near godlike. He was arrestingly handsome, and his upper-class background opened doors for him. He became friends with British royalty, aristocracy and celebrities. And even as he married his first wife in 1995, whispers of his sexual prowess followed him. He was on top of the world, but his ambition reached even further. Something was missing, and that was politics. This is where the story gets kooky. Khan started visiting a clairvoyant who told him that he would become Prime Minister of Pakistan if he married the right woman, which happened to be her, even though she was married with five children. But he accepted, and six months later, he was elected Prime Minister of Pakistan. I've really only just given you a taster here. 
As this story develops, it ties together threads of Khan's embrace of populism and his casting aside of his former westernized lifestyle. He cultivates a spiritual conversion that allows him to appear to represent the real Pakistan, rather than the elite world he is very much part of. Tazir expertly exposes Khan's hypocrisy through this detailed and surprising profile, even using interviews he conducted with the man himself to add delicious illustrations throughout. For Tazir, Khan's hypocrisy goes so deep it's become a Jekyll and Hyde problem. He is actually two people at the same time. And the masterstroke here is the way fascinating details are introduced and developed throughout the piece. It is gripping up to the very end, and I thoroughly recommend finding 25 minutes to sit with it. It's from the most recent issue of Vanity Fair, and you can find the link in the show notes. Last but not least today is an interview from Norimitsu Onishi for The New York Times with the man behind the white supremacist slogan, The Great Replacement. Renaud Camus lives in a castle in a small village in the south of France. And from that castle, he looks out at the rolling hills of his country, one that he describes as being under assault from immigrants, mainly from Africa. His views on the demographic change, i.e. of non-white immigrants waging a conquest against the more white population, have made him one of the most influential thinkers of the far right in the world. So the Times went to that castle to speak with him and to tease out the reasoning behind his toxic worldview that has inspired others to violence, even murder. The suspects in the El Paso and Christchurch mass shootings both cited the Great Replacement as motivations for their desire to defend white populations by killing supposed invaders. When Anishi brought that up, Camus denounced the killings themselves, but says he has no regrets in circulating the phrase. Now, it's at this point that Anishi chooses to describe his study. It's on the top floor of his castle, and it's filled with books and African masks. It's a small moment, but it perfectly illustrates a flaw in his thinking that smells strongly of colonialism. He's happy to decorate his French house with mementos from Africa, but he doesn't want to see Africans in French society. Anishi goes on to describe his surprisingly liberal background, one that shaped his political thinking until an epiphany changed it. He went on to form a political party that called for an end to immigration and for sending immigrants and their children back to their country of origin. Camus imagines a France filled with angry immigrants plotting the conquest of the French. But holed up in his castle, he bases this picture on Twitter and Facebook. It's a telling detail and one that hugely undermines any authority he insists he has on the matter. Check out the rest of this six-minute interview in The New York Times. Thanks for joining me for this week's Top Stories. Check out the show notes for the links to the articles, and if you want to read more, you can go to blendle.com and subscribe to the Daily Digest newsletter, which we send out at 8am Eastern. If you want to get in touch with your thoughts on the show, you can email me at editorial at blendle.com, and you can follow us on Twitter at blendle. We're taking a break from the podcast for now, but we'll be back in November with more great journalism. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.